The people today... They called you king. They think you are a messiah. But you seem to ignore them. Aren't you going to be our king? Who do you think I am? You are the son of God. You can't have known this by what you know of me, Peter. It has been revealed to you by God. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Well, good morning, Hope. How are you? Good, good. Glad to hear it. Um, and welcome to all of you who are here in this room and those of you who are online. Uh, and thank you for tuning in wherever you are around this great big world. And uh, a shout out to all of our campuses and local sites too. And there's a bunch of them, a growing list. Um, and I also want to say welcome to all the new members here in West Des Moines and at all of our different campuses and local sites. Thank you for um, joining. Thank you for being a part of this church. Uh, I do pray, as um, you've been prayed over already, that this church will be a blessing to you and God will inspire you to be a blessing through the mission of this church to the world around us. So that clip that you just saw is from the movie Son of God and it depicts rather accurately, right out of the pages of Matthew 16, a very important conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. It was halftime. So if you think of Jesus' ministry over three years uh, uh, the first year and a half would be the, the first half or the first and second quarter uh, of his journey to the cross. And about halfway through then, he paused. The disciples of Jesus had seen his miracles. They'd heard his teaching. They saw what he was about, the character of, of who he is. They saw and perceived and could actually through their senses, you know, they're living with him as they tour the countryside of Palestine they see what Jesus can do. They hear what he has to say. And so Jesus wants to know, who do you say that I am? He wants to know who the people who are closest to him, what is it that you say? What is it you believe? Who do you say that I am? And some of the disciples hem and haw a little bit. They say, well, some say you're like John the Baptist or Elijah, you know, a great miracle worker from Old Testament times. Kind of remind people of that. Peter's sitting there around the campfire and he just says it. He says, well, I say you're the Messiah. I say you're the son of the living God. I say you're more than just a miracle worker. I say you're more than a revolutionary leader. I say you're more than just a good teacher. Because Messiah in the Hebrew, which Peter would know, means the anointed one of God. It's Christ in the Greek of the New Testament. The anointed one of God. You are the one God has sent into this world to save the world. To restore God's people. To, uh, to, to places of freedom. To breathe new life to God's people here. You are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. That our prophets have pointed to for centuries. The conversation couldn't have gone better. Because if you're Peter. I mean put yourself in his sandals for a moment. You go out on the limb and you say that. All your other fellow disciples are hedging their bets they're playing it safe they're kind of like Bears fans like me this year we're not going to be very good but secretly we hope we are 
apparently we're not going to be very good. But they're saying, well, we think you might be the Messiah, but we don't want to be the ones to say it. Peter doesn't care. Peter just takes the risk. He puts it out there. You're the Messiah. You're the chosen one, the anointed son of God. Blessed are you, Jesus says. Right answer. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. That's the only way you could know this for sure. And I tell you, Jesus goes on, I tell you, you are a rock. The Greek word for rock is Petros. That's where the name Peter comes from. And on this rock of faith that you have just displayed, I'm going to build my whole church. Wow. How good would that feel if you're Peter? There couldn't be a better conversation. There couldn't be more affirmation for what you just did and said. For the faith that you just displayed. And then the whole conversation goes completely south. Just as fast as it elevated, it completely crumbles and falls apart. Because Jesus goes on to say, you're right, Peter, I'm the Messiah. And here's what that means. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And at this point, still your people are like, yes, finally, let's go. We're going to Jerusalem because that's what the Messiah does. Like King David did a thousand years or so before. He rode into Jerusalem and he took over the corruption in the government. He cleaned it up. He restored God's people Israel to their freedom and their, 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 their God-blessed place in this land, this promised land. Yes, let's go and do the same only more because you're even greater. You're the Messiah. David wasn't the Messiah, but you are. So let's go. Let's take on Jerusalem. Let's take over the government. Let's kick Pontius Pilate off of his seat of power and authority. Let's install you, Jesus. And since we're so close to you, maybe we could be your cabinet. Maybe we could be the people right around you. We'll rise up with the tide that's rising with you and your miraculous Messiah power, Jesus. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's take over. The very least, let's take over the temple. Let's kick Caiaphas out of his role as the chief priest. Let's, let's, bring, let's breathe new life into the places where there's been all this religious corruption. Let's go, Jesus. Let's make this world a better place. What could possibly be more important than that? Than take over the, the seats of power in our world and bring a godly perspective to those places. It is important. But it's not the most important because now here's where the whole conversation turns on a dime for Peter. We're going to Jerusalem. Yes, yay, let's go. I'm your guy. Come on, everybody, let's go. And I'm going to be uh, betrayed. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be killed. And three days later, I'll rise from the dead. That's what it means to be the Messiah. Come follow me. Let's go to Jerusalem where it's all going to happen. Peter says, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. Verse 22, heaven forbid, Lord, this will never happen to you. I won't let it. First of all, you're too big. I've seen what you can do. There are no limits. You're the Messiah. They'll never, they'll never They'll never be able to do these things to you. 
You won't have to suffer. You certainly won't be killed. You won't be crucified on a cross. And I'm a little vague on what this whole three days later arise from the dead thing means. That's not going to happen. God forbid. When I said you're the Messiah, that's not what I meant. And so Jesus looks at Peter and he says this. Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Say what? Okay, back to this for a second. Get behind me, Satan. Talk about a conversation completely falling apart. Just a few moments ago, Jesus, you said I'm the rock, and you're going to build your whole church on me, and that I got the right answer, that I called you the Messiah, that that I don't think you're just a good teacher or or a a leader or or a miracle worker. I I think you're the one. I think you're the Son of God. And you said I was right. And you praised me for it. And then you said we're going to Jerusalem. But then, what? Say what? That's not what I meant when I said you're the Messiah. And Jesus, by saying this, says, I know that's not what you meant, Peter. But you're wrong. You're right that I'm the Messiah. You're wrong on the definition of who the Messiah is. Get behind me, Satan. So during this series of sermons, we're trying to make sense out of Jesus' most radical statements. Calling one of your best friends Satan, it's pretty radical. So let's unpack it. Let's read this Greek word together. That'll help everyone. It's opiso, and that doesn't matter that you know how to pronounce that or read that. But what matters is that you know what it means. It's the word translated in your English Bibles as uh, behind or away from me or, or, or something like that. Get opiso from me, Satan, Peter. Literally, it means after instead of before, backward instead of forward, behind, following, not leading. It's pretty clear then what Jesus is saying, and it's not like the English translations are bad, but this just teases it out a little bit more for us. It broadens our understanding of what Jesus is saying, so it helps us make sense of it more. What Jesus is saying is, you're getting ahead of me, Peter. It's not a good place to be. Get behind me. Because when you get ahead of me and you try to lead God, you're going to run into all sorts of messes. You're going to derail the train. You're going to end up places that you don't want to end up. I know it looks good. I know you think it's the right way to go. I mean, what could be possibly wrong with bringing... Uh, good things to corrupt governments? What, what, could be good, what, what could be wrong with, with cleaning those things up? What could be wrong with taking over the temple and, and bringing God's will into the temple again instead of the will of people? What, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing bad about making right those things that have gone wrong, bringing justice to injustice, bringing freedom to the oppressed, and on and on and on the list goes. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm here for more than that. I'm here for way more than that. And if your primary focus gets lost, if we get like Peter and we get ahead of ourselves and we get ahead of God, Jesus is going to say the same thing to us. Get behind me. That's where you're supposed to be because with all due respect to who you are and how faithful you are, Peter, and how right you are about identifying me as the Messiah... I am not here to follow you. I am not here to be a Jesus who just gets dragged along into whatever it is you want me to do. I am here to lead you. 
And when you get ahead of me, that gets all messed up. You end up on the wrong track. And when you get on that wrong track, it ends up in places that you don't want to be. But we feel that way and it looks like the right track because we live in an upside down world. We live in a world where up is down and down is up. And Jesus will go on to say that. Right after he explains this to Peter, he says, Peter, what I mean by this, and the reason I'm calling you Satan is because you're looking at what I'm doing here from a worldly perspective instead of from a heavenly perspective, instead of from God's point of view. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's, Peter. And we do that too, and so it begs the question, and I'll ask you. I'm fond of asking this question of myself and of of you as followers of Jesus Christ, those of you who claim to do that. When you dance with Jesus Christ, who leads? When it comes to the level of maturity of your Christian faith, as you walk this Christian journey, as you live out this Christian life, are you telling Jesus where you're going and asking him to come and bless it? Or are you taking the much more difficult road? That's the easy spiritual road. Hey, Jesus, this is what I'm into, so I'm going to say you're into it too. I I can't imagine Peter's thinking that you'd want to do anything more important than take over Jerusalem. Than to take over the, the, the seats of power in this world. What could possibly be a greater mission for the church? Jesus sets them straight. My kingdom's not of this world. With all due respect, my kingdom's way bigger. You're seeing things from a human point of view, not from God's. And when you do this, when you live according to the wisdom of this world, that me-first life isn't going to get you where you want to go, and that's the problem with it. It isn't just that it's unfaithful to Scripture, unfaithful to Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's that it messes us up. It leads us in places where we get derailed because somewhere along the way, that track isn't going to hold. Here in this church, we have a mission. It's what we believe God is calling us to do. Reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. It's served us so well. It's a paraphrase of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We believe that if we carry out this mission, if we do this, mission is what we do, vision is where we want to end up. It's our goal. It's our, it's our, it, it's our hope. That if we carry out this mission and reach out and share God's love, we will see the day when, powered by God's Holy Spirit, this is our vision, we will be able to bring Christ to all cultures, revive the world with God's love, not with us, not with our charm, not with our wit, not with our wisdom, not because we took over seats of government, something way more powerful than that. A king of all kings. We follow him. That we will follow the one who has way more power than all that, And that power of his spirit will revive the world with God's love. Not with our rightness, not with our winning arguments, but with the power of God's amazing grace and love. And that as a distant vision and outcome of that, we will see heaven is more crowded because of what God has done through us. That's where we want to get. So the mission is what we do, the vision is where we're headed. If you think about it, if you're standing on one side of the street, the vision is I want to get to the other side of the street. Or you're on one side of a canyon, you want to get to the other side. And so the mission is we need to go. We need to walk. We need to move. We need to jump. Take that leap of faith. That's our mission. The vision is what it's going to look like when we get there. But we have this other thing here at Hope that we call core values. And those are like the train tracks 
that keep our engine on track as we go. These are the biblical values that remind us how we're to go about doing this. The things that keep us from getting derailed. The things that keep us from crashing along the way. And one of those things is right here in this story. You have to follow me. You can't get ahead of me, Jesus says. You can't tell me where we're going to go. I'll tell you where we're going to go. Now that takes surrender. And that's what I mean by that's the hard part. That's, that is the hardest move that a, almost any Christian will ever be asked to make. Surrender your life to me. But I don't want to give you a soft reading of this text. I don't want to teach you to follow a Jesus who isn't really the Jesus of the New Testament. So I want him to go ahead and challenge you and me today. And trust me when I tell you, it challenges me too. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, if you don't surrender it, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you're going to save it. And you're going to see things that you wouldn't see otherwise. Because you're on my track. Because you're on my train. Because you're following tracks that aren't going to get derailed. You, you have core values that are going to hold you true to this. The number one core value we have here at Hope is Jesus Christ is life. And the rest is just details. That we aren't going to get ahead of Jesus when we get it right. And we're imperfect and human, so we don't always. I'm not just saying this to you. I'm not saying follow the preacher, follow me. I'm saying follow the Jesus who calls me to get behind him too. Who humbles me on a regular basis like he humbled Peter. Who wants to challenge all of us when we get ahead of him. Let me lead the dance. Let me tell you where the tracks are. Let me invite you on the train. It's not the world's fault necessarily the world tries and says, we really think that this track will be better for you. I, I read an article not that long ago online that said, seven reasons why being selfish is good for you. There's other wisdom of the world out there that says greed is good. And, and, and pride, you have, to have, you have to have pride, you have to believe in yourself and how great you are. I'm not here to dismiss all of that whole 100% completely. We don't have to throw the spiritual baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. I get it. If selfishness means that you don't get onto some horrendous cycle of abuse where you just continually go back and become a victim and a doormat and get trampled on over and over and over again, then be selfish. Stop and get out of that and find the, the new life. I'm not talking about that, but I am telling you that Scripture doesn't have a whole lot of room for anything beyond that. It says, in fact, it says, live a selfless life. Put the needs of the other ahead of you. You know, one of the things that we've had to sacrifice during this pandemic is we don't get to get up and, and greet one another during a service and, you know, say, God's peace be with you, or how do you, you know, for those of you who aren't quite comfortable with those words, like, hey, how you doing? So I want you to do that now. Wherever you are, whatever campus or local site you're at right now, because my concern is that some of you come to church and you just look straight ahead the whole time. I mean, I know you're, you probably notice there's people around you. I get that. But I want you to actually, like, eyeball them. Look, look, look in their eye. Look eye to eye with the people on your right and on your left and say, the train 
Say that, say the train, no, well, actually, I'll make this easier. Just say, I'm really glad you're here. Just go ahead and say that, get up, stand up if you have to, look around, say no, uh, front, forward, backward, no touching, God forbid anybody touch. But just say, hey, how you doing? I'm glad you're here. Okay, now that we've established trust, I want you to turn back to that person and say, you might be on the wrong train. <laughs> so then I didn't have to tell you. Can you believe the audacity of the people around you? My goodness. Go ahead and tell me. You might be on the wrong train, Pastor Mike. <laughs> Some of you are like, really? Can I do that? Yeah, because I do that. Friday night, I was on the wrong train. I went to the Michael Bublé concert with my wife. Mickey Bubbles. You say, why would you call him Mickey Bubbles? Because that was his stage name when he started out as a lounge singer when he was 16 years old. Called himself Mickey Bubbles. And so, yeah, like, I went to the concert, so now I've got to, you know, Buble and I are like this now. So we're, we're super tight, right? So I know all this inside information now, and I'm, I'm going to bless you with it. So here we go. I was so on the wrong track Friday night. So we went to this concert because my wife loves Michael Buble music. I would say we hear more buble in our house than almost any other recording artist. Buble, right? <laughs> Mickey Bubbles, singing with that charming, oh, it's, it's, he's kind of got this jazzy, sort of peaceful, sort of Frank Sinatra. Sally grew up, uh, her dad was a drummer in a big band, her grandfather was a drummer in a big band, so, you know, the gift she got when she was a little girl was a drum set. I'm a really good one, and so she ended up being a percussionist in the college orchestra, and went on tour, all that kind of stuff. It's just in her blood, so she likes the Frank Sinatra sound, the, the big band, you know, the whole thing, the jazzy kind of, but it's peaceful. And so if she sees me getting all stressed out, she'll be like, I got just the thing. Buble. So we go to this concert here in Des Moines on Friday, and he was great. He's just, I mean... I'm not his biggest fan, but I married up, so I went. And I just thought it was great. It, 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 you know, I, I, it was a long week. I sat down. I'm like, okay, how much long? And then he started late. And I'm like, come on. And then, you know, as you're going through, it's like, how, how the third or fourth song in, I'm like, is he going to do like 20 of these? <laughs> this is going to be, do you have to do an encore is what I'm thinking early on, right? So I'm doing the math on how long this might take. By the fourth or fifth song, I'm just like, this is awesome. This is really fun. There's uh, half of our worship band sitting up in the first ten rows, way better seats than ours, I might add. And, and they're all, and so we're, we're seeing, I'm seeing hope people all over the place. That was fun. But it was, just the, it was just the mood, it was just the whole thing. And he talked really openly about his faith, about praying, uh, about God. Thought that was interesting. He um, gave a great concert. Afterwards, we got to our car, which is in that lot, you know, across from the old vets and kitty corner from Wells Fargo Arena. And, and we sat there, and as soon as we got to the car, I realized, because I saw the congestion in that little parking lot, that's kind of a big parking lot. And I said to Sally and thought to myself, I've made a terrible mistake. By my calculations, we're going to be the second to last car out of this parking lot. 
That could be like an hour and a half from now. I was not interested in that at all. But something happened right around me which, which helped. There, you know, everybody had their windows down because it was a nice you know, evening and everyone's playing buble songs on their car stereos and kind of the concert's still going in that sense. And, and so you could hear each other. And there was one woman in a group of four women that was in the car that was next to us. So our car was kind of facing this way and it was kind of weird a lot and theirs was sort of facing this way. So I'm in the driver's seat and their windows are open and my window's open so I could hear everything they're saying. And one of the women is very nervous. She's really upset that they can't get out of there. She keeps getting out of the car. She walks around. She's checking all the different lanes. She's looking around and I'm like, relax. Because now all of a sudden I'm Mr. Calm, right? Now all of a sudden I'm, Mr. I'm feeling pretty righteous. I'm feeling pretty Peter. I gave the right answer. I, I'm not like, at least I'm not like her, right? At least I'm super patient. At least I'm chill. I've learned this because I'm a NASCAR fan. And when you go to NASCAR races back in the day, they'd have 160,000 people at some of these races. Getting out was not easy, and so you'd learn some tricks. And one day, uh, Danny and I were trying to get out of a NASCAR race. And as we're driving, this is where I learned my lesson. There was a guy sitting on a camper chair right in the middle of our lane with his Coors Light, looking at maybe his Bud Light, I don't know. But he's looking around, he has a number eight on his t-shirt for Dale Jr. And he's just kicking back. And I looked, as politely as I could, I said, would you mind moving so that we can try to get out of here? He goes, relax, baby. You ain't going anywhere. So why don't you just pull up a chair and join the party? You a junior fan, junior! No, I am not. Although Junior's a Lutheran, you can look that up. That's pretty cool. So I learned when you're in one of these congested parking lot situations, serenity now. Just, just bring it down, right? Just, just find the peace. So I'm trying. But then I look over, and the one woman who's kind of the instigator tells the other three women, including the driver, she says, back up. Did I mention my car's right here and hers is here and if they back up, they're gonna slam right into the front of my car? Sally sees it first and she says, stop. And I looked and I went, as pastorally and as calmly, and remember how peaceful I was from the concert? Stop! <laughs> and then my north side of the city of Chicago wife said, you should have hit the horn too. <laughs> wow. That's pretty saucy. <laughs> I kid you not. As soon as I yelled, stop! The woman who was driving turned and looked at me and said, oh, sorry, Pastor Mike. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Now, now I'm the one. I am so sorry. <laughs> The only blessing in that whole conversation was they left because they, they, they found a different pathway to go on. But I calculated and realized that's not going to work for them. So I kept looking this way. They went the wrong way. You know, upside down world. I'm going to follow Jesus out of this parking lot. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> but there's one car between me and getting to that lane I need to get in in order to get out. And I told Sally, I said, if we can get in that lane, we're home in 10 minutes. I mean, we're... We're golden. But that car, if that car would just move, not two minutes later, that car moves and goes the wrong way again. I'm like, Jesus loves me. 
I'm, I'm, I'm blessed, right? This is the problem with prosperity theology, by the way. That, that I'm going to use Jesus to get out of the parking lot or to make money or, or, or to be famous or something like that. So I went over into that, that lane, that, that desired lane, and I start driving, and then I realized, oh, this is why nobody's taking this lane. There's a sidewalk right in front of me. The, the lane stops, and there's a sidewalk, and then the lane starts again. I'm in a mid-sized SUV. I've got a little four-wheel drive button. So I hit the button, and I creep my front tires, because I wasn't 100% sure I'd make it. I creep the tires up to the sidewalk. It's not that high, right? (laughs) And I put the front tires up on the sidewalk, ease them up. It's working great. I kid you not. Again, windows down. You can do it, Pastor Mike! I cannot go anywhere in this town. But now I'm committed. My tires, I mean, what are you going to do? Back up? Oh, sorry. No! I just plow straight over the sidewalk. Totally wrong. I'm confessing all of this to you today. Sometimes I'm on the wrong track. Sometimes I messed up. And now that's a silly example, and sometimes it gets a whole lot worse. But we did get home in 10 minutes. Here's the problem. A me-first, selfish, greedy, prideful life won't get you where you think it's going to get you. It won't get you where you want to go. It got me home in 10 minutes. But then I had to deal. I didn't fall asleep great that night. Because I'm like, two people saw me doing things that are questionable the best, right? (laughs) Screaming at women. (laughs) Just as a rule of thumb, you probably should try to avoid that in life. Or men, or any kids, or anybody. And driving over a sidewalk, because I completely, I blame COVID. Yeah, it's just, it's just been a very stressful 18 months, right? This has been, this has been terrible. Or remember the t-shirts in the 70s? The devil made me do it. I know, Jesus says, get behind me. Get behind me. You're not going to get where you want to go this way. You have to choose more wisely. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You must surrender. And I'm not talking about incidents in a parking lot now. I'm talking about way bigger things. What do you live for? What's the main thing? What's this Christianity thing really all about? Using Jesus to take over governments? Using Jesus to fix everything that's a little bit off in his church? Good. Those are great. Go for it. But don't make it the main mission of the church because it's bigger than that. It's way bigger than that. Don't lose the main thing along the way. The main thing is eternal. The main thing has an impact that lasts forever. The main thing, what is it we pray? Instead of praying, instead of asking selfishly, greedy, pridefully, it's not the world's fault. It's just the world has the wrong perspective. The The world thinks that up is down and down is up. And Jesus says, I came to turn the world right side up again to help you avoid the crashes, to put you on the load or the, or the road or the, the tracks that are less traveled, to give you a freedom, to give you a peace, to give you a joy that you can't find anywhere else. Follow me and I'll show you a better way. I'm the truth and I'm the life. I'm not just the way, but I'm the truth and the life. If you want to find that life, follow me. 
In order to do this, we have to surrender. That's hard because it takes humility. Humility is hard, especially in this world that says the way you find life is you get louder. And the way you find life is you just tell yourself, I'm great. Oh, I'm so great. Just keep telling yourself how great you are. You want to know the truth, Jesus says? You're not that great. You're not. I'm not. But here's why that truth sets us free. Because then we aren't lying to ourselves. Then we don't have to fake it to make it. Then we can actually find a truth that sets us free. I'm not saying you should have a crushed self-esteem, that you should just think you're the most pitiful thing ever. You're not. But in order to find that confidence, in order to get your self-esteem to a healthy level, instead of lying to yourself, because every once in a while, don't you wake up and just go, I'm lying. I'm trying to convince myself of something that I know deep down isn't true. Instead, start with God's grace. In order to do that, you've got to get in line. You've got to stop trying to get ahead of Jesus and get behind him and say, I need to be on this train as much as anybody on the face of this earth. I need God's grace just as much as the person sitting next to me who I said, you might be on the wrong train. I might too. But God's grace is bigger than all of that. So now look at yourself the way God sees you. The way the one who made you sees you. What does God's word say? You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are beautiful in my sight. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen nation. You're my very own child. I call you a daughter. I call you a son. I love you so much I was willing to show up and put my life on the line to take nails on a cross for you. That's how important you are to the creator. And that's the ultimate truth. So your confidence should come from who you really are. From seeing yourself the way God actually sees you. Don't ever forget that. You're not a wreck. You're not a total mess. We're all kind of complicated that way. But surrender, sacrifice, humble yourself. In order to get there, we have to humble ourselves. We have to surrender. That's hard. I'm always curious about this stuff, so I looked it up ahead of time. I wondered what Michael Bublé's faith journey was like. It says he grew up Roman Catholic on Google, and whatever you read on Google, you know it's true. <laughs> so it said he grew up Roman Catholic in a suburb of Vancouver, Canada. And, and uh, then when he got famous, when it became a big deal, he kind of drifted away. From, he said it. He says, I kind of don't really believe in that God anymore. Now I think God is just sort of, you know, the universe. And so I pray to the universe, and I, I, I pray to whatever's out there, and all those things. And I guess when you're on top of the world, it looks like a pretty good deal. And then Michael and his wife heard the news from a doctor that their five-year-old son had cancer. And long story short, he realized the universe wasn't going to be able to fix this for him. That it wouldn't be enough. And so when he was interviewed recently, he says, my whole family, we all lived at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. He, he quit for a while. Because he was getting humbled. His whole world got turned seemingly upside down. Or was it? Look closer. Up is down and down is up. And we just had the best doctors. And thank you, God. And thank you, Jesus Christ. 
Now he's not just praying to some vague, random, universal God. He's praying to the one who says, get behind me, Michael Buble. Get behind me, preacher boy, in Michael Buble's parking lot. Get behind me, Lutheran Church of Hope. Get get behind me, Simon Peter. And I'm not telling you that because I'm trying to argue with you or be mean to you, Simon Peter, Jesus is saying. I'm telling you that because I love you and I know that the track that looks so good to you, the one where you lead me, where you try to lead God when you dance, where you tell God this is what you're all about and this is what you should be doing, I know that looks good to an upside-down world, but let me turn it right side up the way God actually made it. Let me teach you to live for the things that matter most, the love you have for your son, the love you have for your family and your friends and your coworkers and your classmates and your community and your neighborhood and, and the whole world around you, people you don't even know. Let me show you a better way to live, the Bible says. Let me show you bigger goals, goals that last forever, goals that won't put you on a track where your train's gonna derail somewhere along the way. Let me show you a better way. I'm not pointing you to this guy and telling you he's perfect and you should be just like him. I'm not pointing you to me and telling me I'm anything close to perfect and you should be just like me. I'm pointing all of us to Jesus Christ who says, get behind me, follow me, and I'll show you this better way. Because if you don't, if you just keep insisting that the wisdom of this world who gets it all upside down and thinks up is down and down is up, Jesus says, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. If you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, be the chief servant, not the one with all the authority and the power. The one who doesn't think you are here to have people serve you, but you are here to serve others. Watch what that does to others and watch what it does to you. But when we follow the ways of the world... We crash, and we end up in places, I mean, because the the world sounds so convincing, and there's all these technological and scientific advances, and they could never, ever be wrong, right? Take a look. Proceed straight. Well, we're 0 for 6. Last chance is the Elmhurst Country Club, other side of the lake on the southeast side. I don't get it. I really don't get it. I thought this would work. Through everything I had at that guy, nothing. That's how it goes sometimes, you know? You lose everything, and everything falls apart, and eventually you die and no one remembers you. That is a very good point, Dwight. Make a right turn. Wait, 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 no, 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 no. It means bear right. No. Up there. It said right, so take a right. No, 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 look. It, it means go up to the right, bear right, over the bridge, and hook up with 307. Make a right Maybe it's turn. a shortcut, Dwight. It said go to the right. It can't mean that. There's well, a lake there. I think it knows where it is going. This is the, the lake. machine knows. This is the lake. Stop yelling at me. No, it's Stop not yelling. Yelling. There's no boat here. Remain calm. I have trained for this. I know I've used that clip before, and I reserve the right to use it again. Because it makes a point makes the point Jesus is trying to make for Peter and God's trying to make for us today through his living word. Make sure you're behind me. It'd be easy just to casually say, oh, I am. I'm with you, Jesus. I'm behind you all the way. But look a little closer. Probably we all have some confessing to do. You know, during this series of sermons that we're embarking on this fall, making sense of Jesus' most radical statements, we're 
unapologetically singing some songs that if you aren't careful in an upside down world, you'll say, those are secular songs. No, they're not. They're Christian hymns. They're just written by bands and artists who are labeled secular, but they're following Jesus. There's a band called Coldplay. Have you heard of them? Kind of a big deal. Kind of like Buble, right? <laughs> Top of the world, super famous, more money than they know what to do with. Rock star lives, access to anything in this world. So the lead singer of Coldplay sat down one day and wrote this song, and it became a minor hit, certainly not their biggest hit. But he wrote a confession. Sounds a whole lot like where Peter was put in this story in Matthew 16. Where did we go? Nobody in this world knows. They'll tell you they know, but they don't know. Just be greedier. Just be, just be more selfish. Just have more pride. That'll do it. Really? Is that going to be enough? No, you're going to derail. i got to say I'm on my way down, says the guy who's on top of the world. Has more money, more fame than almost anybody else. Certainly in the upper echelons of fame and fortune. i got to say, now that I made it to the top, it was a real disappointment. Turns out I'm on my way down. God... Give me style, give me grace, because nothing less will do. I turn to you. God put a smile on my face. He's almost like a psalmist lamenting. God, help, because the world can't do it for me. Where do I go to fall from grace like this? The world doesn't know. The world's guess is as good as mine. Nobody knows. But then there's this turn, like the Psalms. So many of the Psalms turn like this. They start out, somebody bearing their hearts, bearing their souls, crying out to God, God, help! And then along, along the way, they're reminded of who God is, and the way God sees them, and the power of God's amazing grace. And it starts to plant the seeds of this new confidence. Don't ever say you're, going, you're on your way down. Don't ever say you're on your way down when... God gave you style and God gave you grace. So God alone can put a smile on your face that'll last. Soak it up as you hear Perry sing it.
Coldplay ever loses their lead singer, I know a guy. <laughs> There's a better way. Don't ever say you're on your way down. I don't want you to raise your hand. I just want you to answer this in your heart. Are you up against it right now? Overwhelmed? About there? About, like, just want to throw your hands up and say, what's up with this world? What's up with this light? What, what is going on? Don't ever say you're on your way down. Because God gives you style and gives you grace. God still gives us joy and peace. I don't want to just end by saying, so don't go the world's way, go God's, when you don't know what that is. Start here in Philippians 2. Because this is the starting point. God's word says, verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. That'd be a good start. The world says, no, be proud. Be full of yourself. That's where it's at. Make sure the world knows how great you are. You're going to derail. A train's not going to take you where you think it's going to. Find a better train. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. What was that? Listen, 
Though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Look how far he's willing to go to make sure you know that God loves you. Stay in line. Get behind me. Let me lead, Jesus says. Because I want to show you what you were made for. I said this in in my weekly letter to the church a few weeks ago, and I'll just sum it up here at the end of this sermon. The cross here at West Des Moines that stands at the center of our church building, the highest point, is 70 feet high and 7 feet wide, right out of the pages of Scripture to remind us of the power of God's grace for us and the grace He wants us to share to the world around us. 70 times 7, Jesus says. The architect, Kevin Nordmeyer, of our church is a member, and he wanted the simple things to have deep meaning everywhere you look around this building. So you say, okay, I get the cross, and there's kind of a lighthouse effect there. The light of God's love goes out to the world as it drives by. But what's with the three poles? Look closer, and you'll notice those poles are leaning in. The cross is perpendicular, straight up and down. The poles are leaning in. Therefore, God elevated Jesus Christ to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for the sins of the world, for you, for me, to put us on a train of grace. And at the name of Jesus Christ, then every knee should bow. Every knee. The poles are the world starting to take a knee before the cross of Jesus Christ. The one who says, with all due respect, I'm not here to follow you. Because I love you, I'm here to call you to follow me. Take a knee. Bow down before me, Jesus says. And at his name, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. The Bible goes on to say, you can, to paraphrase, you can get on this train now, or you will see it when everything is said and done. Because every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. It would be so much better for you and the world around you if you got on this train now. Humble yourself. Don't think you're better than other people. We all need God's amazing grace. And thank God, it comes. Though he was God, he gave it all up for us. And he doesn't want you to miss it. So he says, get behind me. Stay behind me. And follow me. Instead of trying to talk me into following you. Amen? All right, let's do it, church. Let's stand up wherever you are and let's sing out this closing song.